I was born in a Christian family and a Mennonite community in Mexico. And I was six years old when my parents moved to Belize. I remember every move. I could tell you everything. And uh, they moved into the jungle of Belize, and what is now what is Spanish lookout. At the time when we moved there, I don't know if you can imagine this. There were only 60 acres slashed and burned right by the river when we moved there. Everything else that now is Spanish lookout was under jungle. The, only, the best thing there was was some trails, logging trails through there. Everything else was jungle. That's where we moved to. And as a result, and actually when we moved there, the, a family of uh, 10 kids moved into a little thatch hut. We lived there three weeks with dirt floor. They had two doorways with no door in it. And the size of that uh, grass hut was probably... Uh, I would guesstimate 12 feet wide and 16 feet long. That's where a family of 10 kids with, two, with parents lived, 14 people. And uh, they had a little loft where the brothers slept together. And uh, if we needed to use the bathroom, it had to be done in the jungle. That was all we had. And uh, I, I don't have time to get into it. We don't have, have time. but. But anyway, I just wanted to say this much. As a result, I grew up pretty much a, a pretty wild boy. I got to know the jungle pretty good. I ran barefoot everywhere. And uh, my, as a result, my mom some, sometimes had to dig out thorns out of my feet. And it got harder and harder because the hide got thicker and thicker. And, uh, and, and, and less and less to dig out because a lot of them, they broke off before they were too deep in. Uh, and eventually my hide got so thick that uh, I could run over these cockspurs that I would hear them crack under my feet. Of course, some of them went too deep and had to be dug out, but that's the way I grew up. And when I was 16 years old, I was working for, for a man, a farmer that is now my father-in-law. And... Uh, so we were uh, working on the field, and he would tell me all kinds of stories because he also had kind of a wild life in Mexico. And he told me how he would uh, catch snakes by its tail and uh, yank, uh, yank the head off like this, snap off the head just by uh, making like the uh, whip crack, and he would do it with a snake and the head flies off. I thought, wow, somebody can do it, I can do it. So, uh, but I, I knew that Belize is supposed to have a lot of a very deadly poisonous snakes, so I definitely didn't want, did not want to try it with a deadly snake. I wanted to do it one that was not poisonous, so uh, every time when I killed a snake, I would check what, uh, whether it had fangs or not, because I was, I was taught that a poisonous snake has fangs. And uh, what was strange to me, I never killed a snake that had fangs. So whenever I saw one snake that I had already checked, next time when I would see it somewhere alive, I would just grab it by its tail and snap off its head. And uh, what was uh, mysterious to me, I could never find a head. I had no idea what direction the head was flying. One, day, one time I even took a snake on a, in an empty yard where it was nice and flat and clear, 
I wanted to find a head, and I would snap off its head, and I looked everywhere. I could not find a head. I, don't, I had no idea how far it was flying, which direction it was flying. Anyway, later, eventually, I um, work on the field. My dad had some Spanish workers there, and they stopped me. I was brush hogging with a tractor and brush hog. They stopped me and they said, they just killed a big yellow jaw, which is one of these deadly vipers. And I wanted to see it, because I had never seen one. And then uh, they showed it to me and they said, this is a, a big one, this one has one inch fangs. And I looked at it, that's not a yellow jaw, that's not a poison snake. I, I, that, those are the most that I killed. And uh, I never saw fangs in those snakes. He said, those, that snake has one inch fangs, they told me. Look, it has a yellow jaw, and it has a diamond-shaped head, and it has, a pit, it has pits, like a pit viper, has four nostrils. So, uh, well, I started to get a little bit weak. I took, I took two sticks, opened its mouth, and I looked. No fangs. And suddenly it occurred to me, a snake with one-inch fangs, how could it close its mouth? If it had one-inch fangs in it, maybe they fold. Then I saw these big gums on the, on the top, in the mouth. And I slid the, the stick from the rear forward and out came these big fangs, one-inch fangs. Wow. I had killed countless snakes. I had grabbed countless snakes like these by its tail and snapped off its head. Then, uh, very, very short after that, it was only, only weeks later, we, uh, I helped uh, a big group of employees uh, harvesting corn by hand because uh, it was too undergrown with weeds. The harvester couldn't harvest it. So we had to actually by hand break it and pile it up and, and, get, and uh, harvest it that way. Then suddenly, uh, one worker cries, there's a snake. I said, freeze, don't move. I'll take care of it. So I walk over there, and there's this four-footer snake on a corn stalk, and luckily that one was not poisonous. And uh, I grabbed it by its tail, and I snapped the head off. I heard a loud explosion. And then the blood was gushing from my ear over my shirt. So the head had uh, flown right by my ear, and its teeth had ripped the ear open, and uh, blood was gushing over my shirt. And the man wanted to grab me and rush me to the hospital. I said, no, 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 don't worry, don't worry. It's not a poison snake. I'm okay. And it didn't take long, and the blood was clotting, and I continued work. But that was the last time that I ever tried to yank off the head of a snake. Don't try it. It's dangerous. The heads all fly right by your ear, and it could hit you. So don't try it. It's not worth it. It's dangerous game. I stopped doing that. Anyway, I grew up. I, uh, I received the Lord, I think, around 16 years old. And uh, didn't do very well spiritually the first year. But then eventually I had a turn where I turned back to the Lord and I became a genuine seeker at age 17. And uh, then... Uh, Eventually, I became a very proud Christian. I didn't know at that time that I was a proud Christian. I found it out later. 
But uh, now I say I, I was a proud Christian. I uh, lived a pretty victorious life. I thought if the world was, if everyone was as good as I was, the world would be in top shape. And eventually I fell in love with a girl and uh, I wanted to get married. So I went with a brother that was a truck driver to town to buy my wedding shoes. And it was a pretty long trip. It was at that time, I think it took close to, I don't know, at least two hours. I don't know, three hours. I don't know how long it took to go to Belize City from Spanish Lookout in the 73. I don't know how long it took, more or less. Anyway, we, it was boring, so we passed our time singing everything we could memorize. We would sing. And I had memorized a bunch of songs about heaven. How beautiful heaven must be. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. A bunch of songs like that I had memorized. I love those songs. And uh, suddenly this, this driver started to sing a song. I had learned it in school. I knew it by memory, but I had never really paid attention to that song. But he sang it with his whole heart as a testimony to me. And that song just pierced me in my heart. I realized this brother knows a different Savior than I do. And he was just one of the Mennonite brothers. And actually, I don't think it's, it bothers you. It bothers anything if I say who it was. It was Brother Klaus Reimer. Is he here tonight? And... Uh, this song was going like this. My all, it was German. I'll just try to translate it. My all is set on you. Have I only you? Then I don't care about heaven or earth. Then was heaven without you, there would be no interest for me in thousands of heavens. Were you not already mine here on earth, I would not want to be on earth. Lord Jesus Christ, where you are not, where you are not, there is nothing of any interest to me. That's kind of the words of that song. And I, right there and then, I made, a, I made a prayer inwardly to the Lord. I said, Lord, whatever it takes, I want to experience you the way this brother experiences you. And I was, I was used to that the Lord would answer my prayers. And I got married. And uh, not too long after marriage, my brother-in-law confessed to me, why he broke off friendship when he found out that I was seeing his sister. He used to be my best friend. I thought it was because of jealousy, because he didn't have a girlfriend yet. And I, I, he was older than me. I thought he was just jealous. But a month after I was married, he confessed to me that another friend had kind of mocked him. Do you tolerate a penner into your family? You shouldn't do that. We were looked down a little bit upon as conservative Mennonites. And, uh, and because of that, he broke off friendship with me. When he said that, I was, that, that hit me so hard that I even said, I wish, I didn't tell him that, but inwardly I felt, why didn't you tell me that three months earlier and I would have never married your sister? Now it's too late. Now I have to deal with it. It was very hard. Several times I had to go in the middle of work, I had to go home and be with my wife. 
because I, I was afraid I would lose, I would, I would give her up. I had to do that. At least, I think, two or three times I had to do that. Then eventually I uh, realized it, it was my pride. I was proud. That's why I went through this. So I dealt with it. I asked the Lord to forgive me. And then later I went back to my brother-in-law and I said, thank you. I needed it. And I started to love him like never before. And then uh, Annie got pregnant from the beginning. We had a child in nine months. It was very hard for us. A big, a big blow. Mennonites don't practice birth control. At least that time they didn't. And uh, then the delivery was, when the day, day of delivery came, it was very hard. It was way harder than I had ever imagined that it could be. After 12 hours or so of, uh, of uh, suffering, I just couldn't handle it anymore. So I walked out and I knelt down and I prayed, Lord, let it, let it pass. Let, let the, let, bring the child. Uh, stop the suffering of my dear wife. And then I came back in and I was expecting the Lord would answer the prayer. Because when, uh, when I prayed, I'm such a good Christian, He always answers my prayers. This time He did not answer my prayer. It took another three hours. I don't know how many times harder. When it finally came, I got bitter. I was angry at God. I asked for a, I asked for a loaf of bread and he gave me a, a snake. That's kind of the way I interpret it. As a result, I could not love my child. I wanted to. I knew a Christian father loves his children. I always wanted to have children and I couldn't love it. I have cared for this little girl more than any of the other girls. I would hold her at night when she's cried. I would change her diaper. I don't know if I did any of the others, but I did my first daughter many times because I forced myself. I want to love this, ch this child. I felt condemned for two reasons. One, I was bitter against God. I knew that. I'm condemned. I'll go to the lake of fire for eternity. And I know that a father should love his children. I can't, so I'll, I'll be condemned double. That's the kind of life I had. Is this the answer of my prayer? I asked the Lord to experience him the way I, this brother did. Where is the Lord? <clears throat> this happened for one and a half years. Hell. Eventually, I just couldn't handle it anymore. I went to my uncle, who was a minister, opened up to him, and uh, to, I thought he would probably uh, maybe not excommunicate me, but I would get a real harsh uh, rebuke. And in a very friendly way, he just said, Levi, it looks like the Lord is preparing you for a very special commission. And I interpreted it as he would make me, maybe eventually I would become a minister. I didn't want that. I just wanted to be a Christian and enjoy the Lord. Then eventually, Annie got pregnant again. And uh, it came to the point where one night she woke me up. She asked me if I could go with her to the outhouse. At that time, we did not have a toilet inside. So I had to go with her. And her water broke. And she asked me to rush quickly to get uh, the midwife because we were going to have the baby at the house. 
And uh, before I was ready to, uh, before I was dressed and everything, she already told me, you won't, get, uh, you won't get ready, you have to go and get my mother first. Because otherwise it will be too late. So I rushed, brought her mother, and then I went back to get the midwife, and when and I finally got the midwife there, we walk in and I heard the baby crying. I had not witnessed the birth. And at that point, something happened. Heavens burst open. Love came down for two kids. More than I could handle. I cried and I laughed like a little baby. I was so happy. I got two kids at the same time. One was peacefully sleeping. The other one was crying by the mom. That was August 28, 5 o'clock in the morning, 1975. That was a landmark in my Christian life. At that point, I realized I had to, ha I had to suffer this because of my pride. I was such a proud Christian. After that, I have never, ever felt that my enjoyment came because I was such a good Christian. It was the grace of the Lord and nothing else. From there on, I couldn't be, I couldn't, uh, from, from there on, I just didn't fit anymore into the Mennonite fold. I tried to. I wanted to. I never wanted to leave the Mennonites. I loved the Mennonites. I still love them. I did not want to leave. I wanted to stay there. But I always wanted to talk about Christ, about the wonderful enjoyment of the Lord Jesus. And I, everybody looked at me, you're not a preacher. Why, are, why do you always want to talk about it? And it was very much around that time when the, my father-in-law, he's a reader. He got hold of several books from, uh, from Watchman E. First, the release of the spirit, the breaking of the outer man for the release of the spirit in German. And he loaned it to the ministers and they started to preach from it. And then, not very shortly after that, he got the, uh, the book, uh, The Normal Christian Life. No, I think it was the normal Christian church life, I think, that he got. Because they, uh, the Mennonites started to see something that there should be a church ground. There's, they shouldn't have a name. And, uh, and they started to preach from that. And uh, it really fed me. It really nourished me. I, I didn't know at that time what was going on, but the Lord shepherded me from the ministry side as well as inwardly in, in myself, in my own experiences. Eventually, I would get so filled from the messages that I just felt I couldn't uh, contain it. At that time, they didn't give opportunities for testimonies after the meeting. So I would wait till out, uh, after the meeting. Outside there will be circles of brothers talking. I would join one of the circles and everybody was occupied. I mean, it was filled with farming, cattle, chicken, slaughter chicken, eggs, machinery, business, all kind of stuff. I was not that interested in it. I wanted to talk about the very wonderful message we had. And then I, when there was finally a little opportunity, I would share something about from the message, and everybody would look at me and goodbye, and go home, and I was abandoned there. I felt so lonely. Something is wrong. And also, uh, my wife, I, I realized my wife was troubled that she had a peculiar husband. She wanted to have a normal husband, like everybody else. And we started to feel a... Uh, uh, distance between us that really hurt us, both of us.
we felt like we were in two different worlds. And that worried me very much. I really had a, a desire that, that my dear wife would be with me. Maybe I should say a little bit more before that. There was a, an, an, a, a migration to Costa Rica uh, bef before... No, this happened after 75. There was a, a migration to, to Costa Rica, and they wanted to have more spiritual liberty there, which really appealed to me, so I bought land there. I wanted to move there, too. My, older, my brother Edward moved there. So, um, but then Annie said, I'm not moving there. I want to stay with my family. And uh, so eventually I had to sell that land and build a house at our, at, in Spanish Lookout. Then uh, in 19... I want to say a little... Okay, that's fine. Then in 1985... No, not before that. No, over the, over the years I started to, uh, to feel that uh, there's something wrong. Okay, uh, I'll go back. The, the Mennonites eventually gave opportunities to share after the, after the sermon. And uh, Annie did not like that I would share almost all the time because it, that, that's where she felt that she had a unique husband. Eventually there were a few more that sometimes shared, but it was very, very much just a few. And that bothered me very much. Then eventually I sat down and I just check before the Lord. Lord, what's wrong here? Up to this point, I thought the Mennonites, they have the truth, they have everything we need, but now I realize something missing. And I was just wondering, how, it would, how would it be? Because they had two sessions. One, uh, two sessions where two different ministers would share a portion. I, I consider, how would it be if instead of two sessions, they would have only one session, and then the other session would be, would be for overflow? Where, where mutually everybody could either share from the message or from their experiences during the week. And then when I was considering that before the Lord, the Lord opened a, a window of a vision where I saw, where I actually saw a mutual meeting where everyone was overflowing of enjoyment. Not all at the same time, but one would speak and then the other one would speak and there would be responses to, from each other speaking. It was, brothers and sisters, it was so glorious that I told the Lord, Lord, don't let me die before I can experience this. I want this. Of course, I was warned always, don't take any kind of visions because visions are dangerous. So I checked with the Bible, see uh, if it matched, uh, if the Bible matched the vision that I had. So I, f I didn't find uh, 1 Corinthians 14 or Ephesians 4, but I saw John chapter 7, verse 37. He who believes into me, as the scripture said, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. To me, that was a confirmation. There should be rivers of living water flowing from each one that has this experience. And the other one was, uh, it's used in a negative sense, but I realize that it's also in a positive sense. Out of the abundance of the, of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever we are filled of, we will speak. That's the way we can see who is filled with what. When you meet your friends, with whom, what do you speak about? 
And I saw this pretty soon that very few people are overflowing with Christ. So many people are overflowing with other stuff, with, with their daily work or what their, their daily activities or whatever. And then I, was, I, was, I started to fight. I realized there's a long battle to fight to uh, get to this point where we will have a mutual meeting. Eventually, and the, the Mennonites, they have a monthly brothers meeting. And in that brothers meeting, they started to encourage mutuality. Those monthly brothers meeting, for me, came my nourish, nourishing meetings. At least in those meetings, it was, it was uh, encouraged for everyone to speak. And there were probably at least 10 brothers that usually would speak. So I, at least I didn't feel that lonely anymore. And, and uh, Annie wasn't there to feel that I, I was, uh, she had a unique husband. And, uh, but slow and more, and then more, and I would start to encourage the brothers. I would sometimes boldly encourage, and why wouldn't everybody speak like this? Eventually, I was publicly rebuked by my uncle. He said, Levi, you have no right to expect the other brothers to, to think the same, or tell them, or encourage them for something you think that is, that need, that's, that is right. So I, right away, I apologized. I apologized publicly. And uh, it was very strange. When I apologized, I lost my enjoyment. This has happened twice in my, in, during the period of my, my life and my time. And I, I got into darkness. And I came to the point, maybe I misinterpreted the vision. Maybe the Lord has only showed me how it will be in heaven. Maybe here on the earth we can never expect mutuality like this, like, like I saw in the, in the vision. And I got into despair, I got into, I felt like my life doesn't have meaning anymore, my Christian life, because there's nothing to do. We cannot have anything here on earth, we just have to wait till we die. Actually, I got, I, I got so down that I would even, I had a logging business, I would uh, hunt logs in the jungle, in the forest, cut them and make boards from them and, uh, and sell them at a lumber yard at home. And I would go barefoot hunting for logs, hoping, and I'm all alone in the jungle, nobody with me, and I would hope that a snake would die, bite me and I could die and go to heaven. I came to that point, I got so low for a, for a while. And uh, I think it ha this happened before, before this happened, when we were so desperate, I don't know exactly the chronology of, of the experiences, but uh, at one point, I was so desperate that I, inv I invited two ministers to our house for dinner because I wanted, we, I wanted help because uh, I didn't like the rift that was between me and my wife. They came and they were all night at our house and ate dinner. And after dinner, we, I mean, when they left, I walked out with them and asked them, what is, what is your conclusion? What, what can be done? And the answer I got was, uh, Levi, Annie is a wonderful sister. And I knew that. There's nothing wrong with her. She is very faithful, comes faithful to all meetings. She's very well-dressed, very proper, uses her head covering, very faithful. There's nothing wrong with her. If there is a problem, then it is with you. That made me so desperate. If it's my problem, I need to do something because I know there's something wrong. If it's with me, I, I want the answer. So I desperately prayed. 
and searched, couldn't get the answers. Then after that, I think this happened where I uh, would go in the jungle and hoping that a snake would bite me. And I had some very close encounters, but the snakes would never bite me. And uh, I remember one time I was taking a, the forest ranger into the, and to stamp all the mahogany logs, and I had to hold my hand low to, uh, some, in some cases, I'd, usually it's like this, but sometimes I would do it like this to chop a nice smooth uh, root there so that he could put his stamp there. While I was doing that, he said, he said Levi, jump! There's a big uh, viper below me. The, the, my hand was going right above her head. There was only like four to six inches between my hand and the head of that big snake, poisonous snake. After I jumped, she disappeared under the roots. It was gone. She wouldn't bite me. Eventually, I was so down and so in despair, I couldn't go anywhere to visit because you're not supposed to visit other places. And, uh, but, but then my, my wife's parents were, were my, my mother-in-law got sick, and they were in Canada at this time. And then they asked to, bring their, to, bring, to get her family, their family, their younger siblings to, to Canada. I don't know if Mano remembers that. So we were supposed to take them with, a, with their van to Canada, so that was a legitimate reason for us to make a trip. And, um, but on just, just days before we were leaving, he calls back and cancels it. He says, no, we don't want our van there. We want the kids just to fly, just buy tickets for them and, and fly them to Canada. So we try to cancel the trip. We cannot go. And, uh, and actually... Uh, uh, one of the, the ministers by this time had, had already connections with, with the churches in the United States. They, they started, okay, sorry, I have to go back again. Uh, during this course of time, I think it must have been uh, in the later 70s, probably in 75, 76, they were so impressed with Watchmanese ministry that they, called, they, they wrote a bookstore in Germany and asked for, for that literature for those books. They wanted them in German uh, because they couldn't read English very well. So they write back and they say, we don't carry Watchmanese books, but the church in Stuttgart does. So they gave them the, uh, the address. So they got books from the church in Stuttgart, both from Watchmanese and Witness Lee. And, uh, and they started to preach, and they preached from those books. It was very, very watering. And, uh, and eventually, two, two ministers went to the United States to visit Brother Witness Lee, and they attended some conferences. And when they came back, I noticed that they have something that tastes just like the experiences that I had had. I wanted more of that, but they spoke very little of it. And eventually, they went to, uh, to the training. Uh, they actually, I think two of the ministers went to both trainings of Acts, of the Acts trainings, what year would that have been? Early 80s. In the very early 80s, probably. And then after the second training, they were so impressed with the ministry that they invited two brothers to come to Spanish Lookout to minister to them. Brother Don Rodledge and Brother Don, uh, Don Looper. No, John So. Thank you. John So came, a German brother from Germany. And uh, I was stranded in the jungle. I could not attend those meetings. I cried there because I couldn't. I wanted to, but I couldn't. Later, my brother Edward came and, and gave a report of those meetings. 
And it was just so sweet. And my heart just, I wanted that. And um, then, now I'll go back to this trip. The, the, uh, I had some questions that nobody could answer. One of them was, why are the women so restricted in the Christian circles? And uh, the, the ministers couldn't answer that. I mean, there is, there's verses in the Bible, of course, they would give it to me, but, but to, to me it was not a satisfactory answer. And, uh, and, and there were a few other questions. And then uh, one minister gave me an, a phone number because he knew we were going to Canada. He gave me a phone number from a brother from Winnipeg. He said, uh, visit these brothers, they will answer your questions. So, uh, but now when they, we got the call that they, the van was no longer needed, we canceled, but I had no peace. I felt like I was hitting a wall. And eventually I just didn't know what to do. So I went back to the minister, one of them, to my uncle, and he said, well, Levi, uh, it would be good if an adult would go with these children because they were all pretty young. And uh, could you afford uh, pay tickets for all your family? We had very good income at that time. I said, that's no problem, but isn't it a sin to spend so much money in, in a trip that is not so legitimate? He said, well, Levi, if you feel you don't have peace to cancel, maybe you need to try to, to buy tickets, see if you'll have peace with that. So I went to talk to my father, and he said the same thing. That, that shocked me, because usually he would never say that. Why would he say that now? So I ended up buying tickets, but I felt so bad buying the tickets, spending so much money, and actually, we got a pretty good deal. I, only me paid full fare. Everybody else had half fare. They had given a 50% discount for family fares. And, uh, and the, uh, the agent said, to, just to satisfy me, well, you may be lucky. Sometimes they ask for volunteers. You may be, maybe you could uh, make some money. I didn't, of course, I, did, I didn't take that too hard. But, so we, we ended up flying to Canada with family, with all of my family. Rosie was not born yet, so we were only um, four of us. Is that true? Five of us. Yeah, four of us, right? Five kids. No, it would be four plus two, six of us. And three of the siblings. So we were nine, nine of us. And, um, and I, I just couldn't enjoy the flight because even, even one brother, a very close brother to me, came to me and and said, Levi, you always warn other people for traveling uh, without a reason, and now you're doing the same thing. It really bothered me. And, and then we, uh, the plane stops in Minneapolis, and then they, I hear the volunteer, I mean, they, they, I hear the, the stewardess say, uh, we need volunteers. If anyone wants to get off the plane and uh, fly later, we'll give $75 a ticket. I couldn't understand what they said. I only heard the word volunteer, and I heard $75. And, uh, and that appealed to me. I jumped up and I followed the uh, flight attendant and asked, what did they say? And she explained it to me and I said, if you need nine volunteers, we'll volunteer. I said, oh no, we never need nine volunteers. But come with me, we'll go off the plane and, find and check at the counter, see how many volunteers they need. So I follow her and I hear her asking, how many volunteers do you need? And the man says, we need nine volunteers. <laughs> And then I realized the Lord wants us to go. I first had to be, be confirmed before I could believe it was the Lord. So I felt a little bit embarrassed like Thomas. Blessed are those who 
believe before they see. But I had to see first. So we stayed in Minneapolis for, for six more hours. This was at noon. At six o'clock, we were ready to board the plane again. And, uh, and then they asked again for volunteers to stay till the next morning. And uh, they went up. Eventually, they offered $250 a ticket if we would stay till next morning. So we, we ended up sending, I think, two of your, T Tina and one of your brothers. You went ahead and the others stayed. We, making the story short, we got all our expenses paid for that trip, plus $300 profit in our pocket, US dollars. <laughs> I knew the Lord wants to do something, so we visited many different churches, even non-Mennonite churches, during the course of time we were in Canada. The last day before we left, I just didn't have peace. I need to call this number. We hadn't visited them yet. That came later. So, uh, um, yeah, the last Lord's Day, after we, we were going to leave Monday morning, I just didn't have peace. I need to call this number that the minister had given me. So I called uh, this number and said, yeah, if you want to come, you're welcome. Come tomorrow morning to the meeting. So we go to their meeting in, uh, in Winnipeg, church in Winnipeg. It was very strange, but they sang this song that both Annie and I were very impressed with. And especially the loving care that we felt with them. It was different from all the other groups that we had visited. And uh, they invited us, they wanted us for lunch, and none of the other people had invited us. Only close relatives would invite us, but not other brothers and sisters. These had never known, we had never seen these people, and they would invite us for lunch. They even invited us to stay for the night. And of course, we, didn't, we already had arrangements, we couldn't do that, but that really impressed us. And then they asked, and we bought, with this money, we bought a pickup truck to travel back to Belize. We only bought, had one-way tickets. Otherwise, you might calculate, might not calculate right. We only had one-way tickets. And then uh, they said, why wouldn't you stop in Oklahoma City when you go back? Ask the brothers to stay for the night in their house. Called them. So, okay, so they gave us a phone number. And we called them. We told them when we would come. And uh, they said, yeah, that's fine. So we, uh, Tuesday evening, we got to Oklahoma City, and a brother came and, uh, and, uh, and uh, escorted us from the highway to, uh, to the meeting hall, and he said, we have a meeting tonight. Would you like to attend a meeting? We were tired, but of course, yeah, sure, we'll attend a meeting. And then uh, I walk into the meeting, and this so happened that you had a training, uh, a God's economy training or something with Brother James Barber. And he would, one Tuesday night, he would give a message on God's economy, and we didn't have more, they didn't have morning revivals at that time. So he would, they would give out the, uh, the outlines, and during the week, they would get into the outlines, and then the following Tuesday, they would overflow from, from that previous Tuesday. And it sovereignly so happened that we came to the meeting where there was the overflow. When we walked into the meeting, there was a group, I would think at least 75, I don't know what, what size there was about, 75, 80. And everyone was eager to share. Sisters, young sisters, old sisters would pop up. Young brothers, old brothers, wow, I'm in heaven! <laughs> 
I had, I had to cry out of joy. I am raptured. Finally, my vision is here. Now I know we can have this kind of meetings here on earth. Now I know I have a right to expect that others would have, would have the same experience as I had. And, uh, but then that, that night, there was fellowship, and in that fellowship I found out that the, uh, the brothers in Oklahoma City, the, uh, the churches, they, they believe that once you're saved, you can never get lost. You're eternally saved. Not, not once you're always saved, but, but eternal security. And uh, that scared me. What have I gotten into? This is serious. I need to get out of here. And the brothers tried to defend himself a little bit, and uh, it just bothered me even more. But then there was one brother there, just totally relaxed. He said, Brother Levi, even though you very strongly believe that you can lose your salvation, and we just as strongly believe that we cannot lose our salvation, you are just as much my brother as these that agree with me. Makes no difference. You can live your faith and we, your, your beliefs, and we can believe, live our beliefs, and we can be one with it. That word pierced me. I realized I am wrong. I was for the oneness. I had always felt that Christians should be one. Why are there so many different groups? If there's only one God, there should also be only one church. I thought the Lord would have to send a big tribulation sometime to, to force believers to be one. And now I realize I'm ready to make a division over this matter about whether you believe that you can be you're eternally saved or not. So I came home, and uh, actually I have to say a little bit more. In that trip, I was with a brother. We had problems with our papers. They, uh, uh, I hadn't taken it serious that the, the dealer tag that was on the truck expired, and I would have trouble in Mexico with an expired tag. So I needed help. So a brother that didn't know me was actually Brother Roger Smelser. He, uh, he uh, uh, risked his insurance to put his insurance onto my, onto my, uh, to my truck to get tags so that I could go. If I had had a rack, he probably would have lost his insurance. And he did that for a stranger he had never seen. That really impressed me. How would somebody dare to do that? It really touched me very deeply. And he also invited us over for the night. We spent in his, his house for the, uh, two nights. And one thing within me, I always felt, I want the Christ that he has. But I was really troubled that he would all the time say, Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, I love you. So I rebuked him. I said, brother. I am concerned about you because you're using the name of the Lord in vain. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, Levi, I don't use the name of the Lord in vain. Every time when I say, Lord Jesus, I receive more God. That's not vain. That's gain. Okay. Another thing I, I, uh, that touched me was uh, he would pray. Oh, almost every five minutes there would be a, a little prayer. That really impressed me when he prayed, because the Lord Jesus says we should pray unceasingly. And then he had just prayed, and we walk in, and he sits down. The lunch is ready on the table, so he sits down at the table and starts to eat. But uh, I couldn't eat because I hadn't bowed my head yet to say grace. 
Then when he saw that I was hesitating, he prayed again. And then I ate. I was fine. When I came home from that trip, uh, we, there was a wedding the next, the next weekend. I sat across from Brother Carl Reimer at the table. I don't know if he remembers that. And then uh, he was there before, so I came later when there was an empty seat at the table. And, and I bow, he saw me bowing down my head, and then he asked me right away when I started to eat, uh, with whom, Levi, with whom did you talk last? And I was thinking around, I, I don't remember. And then he said, well, I thought uh, maybe you talked to God because I saw you bowing your head. <laughs> Man, that, that uh, hit me. <laughs> I realized that a lot of my uh, practices were a ritual, not, nothing else. And I took it very serious. I, I want to experience the Lord in a more intimate way. Anyway, going back, uh, the second day when I was with Roger, I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I, I said again, brother, I'm just so concerned that you're using the name of the Lord in vain. And he was a little bit upset with me. He turned off the road and got into a parking lot and made me read about 20 verses on calling on the name of the Lord. And he would keep asking me, Levi, do you believe in the Bible? Yes. Do you believe that we should obey the Bible? Yes. Do you see that these verses show, actually charge us to call on the name of the Lord? Uh, yeah. Okay, and you want, to, you want to obey the Bible, right? Y yeah. Okay. But now we'll walk across this parking lot and you call with me the whole time. And uh, nonstop. I was angry at him that he would make me do it. <laughs> On the other hand, I realized I owe it to him because he has now almost two straight days spent with me to help me, and I couldn't pay him for it. He has given us two nights with all the meals, and I couldn't pay him for it. Now I wouldn't even do something that was actually, that he convicted me of in the Bible that it's actually biblical. So I, I very reluctantly did it. And before we were... I felt like there was a one-mile-long parking lot, and it seemed forever. Before we were over, we probably called 30 times in the name of the Lord during that time. Towards the end, I started to feel a sweet sense within me. I never, this is so sweet, my goodness. When I got back to the, uh, to the house, we went into our bedroom, and I told, I told Annie, Annie, I learned something today. We need to start calling in the name of the Lord. And, when, and we need to do it. When, some, when one of us does it, the other one should say amen. We need to stand with each other and start, start to make this a practice. And we started to do it. And, uh, and we, we felt there was life coming into our house. And um, then I need, to, I need to go faster. Sorry. The, uh, this was in November of 1983, just before Rosie was born. In 1984, our bulldozer broke down to, that we used to haul logs, so uh, we couldn't find the parts. I was forced to go to the United States again, and obviously we went to Oklahoma City to get the parts. And uh, I made the tickets for two weeks, because <laughs> I wanted to have a little bit more fellowship. And uh, very enjoyable. That's when I met uh, you and Brother James Barber. And uh, so I opened to, uh, actually, I, we bought several pickup trucks there, several vehicles, too many for us to take home. I felt so condemned. We went to an auction sale, and they, some of the vehicles we got were so cheap 
we couldn't, we couldn't resist. We bought them. And eventually, the, the one we really wanted was sold last. We ended up buying five vehicles. My brother and I could only take four. So I had to leave one, which made, gave it another reason for me to come back to get the other vehicles. So, and, and this was in 84 February. And then in May, I came back to get the other vehicle. And uh, in May, I, I attended the first table meeting. In February, I dodged it because uh, a Mennonite should not partake of another table. So I excused myself from the table meeting and went to the Mennonites in Boli and uh, visiting them. And I almost froze to death because the heater didn't work on the truck that I had bought. Very, very cold. <clears throat> I was freezing, below freezing point when I, when I went there. And then, uh, but then in, in May, I, I had seen enough that I had a desire to partake of the table meeting. And when I was in that table meeting, again, I felt I had a foretaste of heaven. At that time, I still didn't know that, that the new Jerusalem will actually be in, on the new earth. And uh, it was just so sweet. I just felt if I could be in a meeting like this for eternity, I would not be uh, boring. And uh, then I saw that a meeting should actually be a foretaste of what we want to do for, for eternity. If, it's, if we look at the watch and we see it's going five minutes over and we're upset, then there's something wrong. We should enjoy the meeting. The meeting should be enjoyable. It should be a real enjoyment of the Lord. That's what I learned in that meeting. Anyway, uh, now I'll go back again in February. When we went home, my brother and I, we were driving down. I felt so dried out from all the business that we did. I told him when we approached Austin, I said, Brother John, why wouldn't we stop in Austin? See if there's a meeting by any chance. And uh, he said, okay. So I knew where the meeting hall was because we stopped there also uh, in 84, 83, I mean. This was in 84. And... Uh, so we go there to, to the meeting hall, and, they, and that so happens that they have a gospel meeting there, and they had a love feast. So we even got a big meal, a free meal. Money meant a lot to me at that time, and maybe still way too much. And uh, so uh, in that meeting, they sang that song, Once I Thirsted for a Fountain, and it's just impressed me so deep. And, uh, and I stood up and I testified that a magnet had pulled us off the freeway to this church. And a sister cried out, come and drink the living water. And the whole church rose up and just shouted, invited us, come and drink the living water. It was the sweetest experience in, our, in my life. I don't know what John thought about it, but to me it was very, very sweet. And then, uh, when, oh, before I, before I left Oklahoma City, I, I told a brother, uh, about my, my wife. She, al she always felt she didn't have what I had. What, how I could help her? And, uh, and this time she had even said, it's not fair that you always go to the United States and you don't take me with you. Apparently she tasted something when she, we were there the first time. And he said, well, I can help her because we have a, I have a tape recorder and, and tape player and I'll give you a bunch of tapes, and you can listen to the, you can give it to her, and she can listen to the tapes singing, very wonderful singing, and, and some messages from Brother James Barber. And I said, oh no, the Mennonites don't like tape players at that time. And uh, that was not right.
And I had rebuked Brother Larry for having a tape player. And what would he say if, if he'd find out that I had a tape player in a house? But within me, something said, Levi, don't you want your wife to come to the same page of your experience? Then I couldn't say, but yes, I'll take it. But when I approached Spanish Lookout, my conscience just smote me. I cannot give it to her. So I hid it in the attic for about six months. Never told her a word. But then slowly within me, something just bothered me. I am, I am not faithful to my dear wife. I am not faithful to my promise that I gave the brother that I would give it to her. So eventually I apologized to her and, where is it? Where is it? Bring it here. I want to see it. <laughs> so I brought it one evening and the children were all to bed and, and we closed the door and we very calmly listened to it. Later they confessed that they had heard very wonderful music and they had put their ears against the door to listen. <laughs> And uh, anyway, making the story short, eventually the, uh, Annie started to, bo to bother me. Uh, when will you take me again to, uh, to Oklahoma? I want to go. And during this time, in 1985, I was so burdened with the gospel. And uh, so I, we prayed, Annie and I, that we would have, uh, I needed to hire two employees. So we prayed that the Lord would give us open sinners to lead him to the Lord, and he did. Two, two men uh, started to work for me, and they both prayed to receive the Lord, and they begged to be baptized. But the Mennonites did not have a way to baptize them. And eventually, they did uh, appoint me kind of like an apostle to go out to Santa Familia to help with the gospel. And, uh, and we did eventually, well, that was later when two, two of them were baptized, but... But uh, they did, uh, the brothers in Spanish Lookout, they did authorize us to have instruction class with, with these uh, Hispanics and English-speaking people, the local people in our area. And Carl was also involved with it, and a few other brothers. Was Alvin also or John Dwick only? I don't know, I remember who. There were a few, a few more that were involved in this. And those meetings were the top, those were the, the, uh, the, the uh, what should I say, the landmark, those were the, uh, the lifeline for us uh, in, our, in our Christian life. We would always look forward for these meetings. Until one day, the brother, one of those Hispanics stood up and he said, we will not come anymore to this meeting because you're standing in the door and you say, come in, come in. But when we want to come in, you, st you stay standing in the door and don't let us in. This is who you are. We will not come to, you, this, to this anymore. Because they realized we would not baptize them. We just wanted to have meetings with them. So we, our, our instruction class meeting stopped. With us, it was never an instruction class meeting. With us, it was a home meeting. And then about four months later or so, I go to Carl and I tell him, Brother, I feel so starved after we stopped with those meetings. And Carl said, I feel the same way. And then he suggested, well, why wouldn't we start again? Just, just with us. I, I asked, well, with whom? Well, with us. If the Spanish don't want to do it with us anymore, then we'll just do it among us. So I said, brother, are you ready for the consequences? Earlier we were covered because they asked us to have classes with these people, but now we are not covered. Now we do something on our own. Are you ready for it? He said, brother Levi, if, uh, if our goal is to gain Christ, 
is that wrong? I said, no, actually it's not. Well, what, what hinders us? Why wouldn't we start to have home meetings? And, uh, okay, so we started. We had our first meeting. Okay, now I'll go back. Uh, go. This was in June. Now I have to go back again uh, towards the beginning of 80, 80, 1985. I started more and more, I started to realize that what I'm looking for might never work with the Mennonites. Even during, in the course of time, one time, uh, John Duick wanted to uh, join another Mennonite group and got so disappointed that I dared, that it blurted out of my mouth, you're looking for something you will not find in any Mennonite group. And that scared me because I realized I'm also looking for something that I might never find anywhere else. I mean, never might never find in any Mennonite group. And that scared me very much because I wanted to stay a Mennonite. Yeah, I mean, yeah, John Eldick, yes. Yeah, yeah, he, he's, he passed away already, yeah. And uh, then, in the beginning of the year, Annie bothered me so much that uh, Levi, you don't, if you loved me, you would take me there again. So I promised her, okay, this, in this dry season, I have a big plan. I want to log out a 300-acre plot of land take all the logs out. When we finish, we'll take a trip. Okay, she, she didn't have any problem with it. Then one day I was bringing a big load of logs down a hill, spiral against, or on the hill, and I got out of control. The load was too heavy, pushed the tractor out of control, and I had to take out a gear and just glide down the, the hill, and the, the trailer was fishtailing, and uh, I thought I'm dying. But eventually it stopped, and I was on the wheels. I hadn't, I hadn't rolled. I had stayed on the road, and I knew this is a miracle. I just slammed my head on the steering wheel, and I cried and asked, Lord, why did I not die? What do you want? And, I, and the Lord came back and said, Levi, you have not been faithful to your wife. You wanted her to get what you have, and you're not caring for her. And I said, okay, okay, okay. So we, I hurried home and I uh, prepared. And we, then I think the next day or the second day, we moved into the jungle to, go, to, to work faster because it took a long time traveling to back and forth every day. Now we would move into the jungle and we would uh, produce probably double to finish it quicker. Then we would go. And also I hired, I was planning to take everything out with our own tra tractor and trailer. So now I hired an 18-wheeler uh, semi to haul logs out to do it quicker, faster. And uh, so we, uh, but at that time they didn't have uh, log trailers, so they had just flatbeds and we had to put two by threes as rungs into the sticks into the sides to hold the logs from rolling off. So, so, and we didn't have a nice loader with a fork, we only had a loader that had a hook dangling in front. So uh, one person had to be on the bottom to, to hook the hook in, and one had to be up on the load to maneuver the logs in place up to the last log. And that was me that would be up there. And when we had finally loaded almost all the logs, it was a high load, maybe about 30 logs under the truck, the rungs broke, and the logs rolled off the truck. And I was on top of there. I was paddling on top of, of the logs, trying to stay on top of the logs. I wouldn't get underneath. I don't think any science, scientist could calculate how it would be possible that you would stay on top of the logs when, when like 10 logs at the same time roll off a truck from about, I don't know, 10 feet high into the ground. And I was on top, of, on top there. 
And I, I stayed on top of the logs, landed on a sitting position, and another log followed, hit me against my shoulder, and slammed me against a tree, a standing tree. I just thought, now I'm dead. And then I sat there, and I felt there was a hand here on my shoulder that had pushed the log out. And I felt like the hand was there for about five minutes. I sat there. Am I still alive? And eventually I realized I still live. And uh, I had bruises, but I, I wasn't badly hurt. And I, I got the message. I climbed, not fully. <laughs> I still put the new rungs and the new sticks into the side, and I got back up there and maneuvered the logs like before, just with a little bit more caution that it wouldn't break again. And we loaded the reloaded the truck, and I told him, go home, go, back, go out, and don't come back. And we packed up and we left. And within one or two days, we were gone. And I let the last of our logs, never pulled them out. They all rot in the, in the woods that we had caught. Never, never went back. I sold the land and was gone. And all these beautiful mahogany logs, big ones. I just, just sold it. No peace to ever hold, take them out. So we made that trip. And then we uh, had to have, take a visa for Rosie because she was not a Canadian yet. They asked me a bunch of questions and uh, we had by this time uh, another group had moved to Costa Rica. Did I share that yet? They, uh, and there, Annie's uh, older sister that she was very close to, my wife, had moved there so uh, she had some interest to move there. So we bought land there again to Nova Scotia, Canada. And uh, so we went there first and had, uh, had a wreck there on the way, almost, just miraculously we were not killed and made us very strange feeling to go to Nova Scotia, no peace. When we got there, we realized that they had less spiritual freedom than we, than, than we had in Spanish Lagos, so I knew this is not where the Lord wants us to, to be, so I told my brother-in-law, sell the land, we are not moving here. He was very disappointed, but Annie and I, we were both very clear. The Lord does not want us to move here. So uh, when we came back into the United States, I asked a uh, custom official or an immigration official to give us a one-month visa for Rosie. Because earlier we only had a seven-day visa. Because I, I told him we only wanted to use, stay seven days in the United States. And he said, no problem. He, he wrote in the passport and gave it to us. And, and we went to Oklahoma City. And we were there for four weeks and thoroughly enjoyed the fellowship. Rented a house there. Spent too much money. Then we were going to go home. Uh, two days before the visa expired, we were going to go home. And then Roger told me, Levi, there's going to be a conference in two weeks in Oklahoma City, Labor Day conference. Why wouldn't you stay? And, uh, and, it, and I have to go back. We just did the, uh, the day before we left on that trip, uh, we were going to have the second home meeting. It was in the beginning of June. We couldn't attend that meeting because a lot of, the visit, a lot of our relatives wanted to visit with us before we left on a three-month trip. And uh, so uh, I was really longing for that home meeting, but we were not there at the second home meeting. I don't know how it went, but anyway, to, to, and I was always very eager. I want to know whether those home meetings are going on. We were now gone for, gone for two months, 
And uh, we were going to stop in Mexico yet, and uh, where we were born, that community, where, where Annie's, uh, my wife's uh, grandparents and uncles and aunts lived. We were gonna, so our whole trip was about three months, and we were very desperate. I would like to know. But in, in the community, they had only one community phone, a, a public phone, where always a, a girl was working there, a Mennonite girl, and was no privacy. I couldn't just ring and ask them, how, did the, how was the home meeting? I had to ask somebody to come there, and I wanted to have Carl come to the, to the phone. I would call back. So I called I call this girl and I asked, could you call Carl in a local line and ask him to be here in one hour that I could speak to him? Carl or, or my, my brother, Carl and my brother Dieter. I, I didn't say or. I wanted both of them because if only Carl would come, the girl would wonder, why would I not call Diedrich? Because Diedrich was caring for our farm, for our business, and everything. It's not logical that I wouldn't want to talk to my brother. Why would I talk to Carl? We didn't have that much together. But I had no interest about my farm. I didn't care about my business. I cared about the home meetings. I knew my brother Diedrich wouldn't know. Or at least I thought maybe he wouldn't know. And... Uh, so when I called an hour later, only my brother Diedrich is there. Uh, the, the girl had, had, had understood Carl or Diedrich, and logically I would want to talk to my brother. I was so disappointed. That was not what I was calling for. I didn't tell him, though. I didn't want to offend him. But then I dared to ask him, Diedrich, have you ever heard anything about some home meetings? Because I thought if, if the home meetings would still go on, by now... It would be like wildfire, everybody knowing about it. And he said, what home meetings? I've never heard of it. My heart sank. That means they gave up. They must not exist anymore. If they were still existing, the, the Mennonites would know, everyone would know about it by now. Because this is now th almost three months since we started. My heart sank. What shall we do? I didn't, want, I didn't want to go. I didn't feel like going home. I knew we had to go home. And then, uh, but then anyway, uh, when Brother Roger said, uh, stay for the home meeting, I mean for the conference, I said, well, if we can extend Rosie's visa, we will stay. And I said, he said, okay, let's go to the immigration, see if we can get an extension. So on the way to the immigration, we pray, Lord, if it's your will, uh, lead the immigration officials to give an extension to the visa. And I was totally at peace. If they say no, we will just go. And uh, so I give this passport to the lady there, and, and her mouth opens, her eyes. She didn't say a word. She just walks into the room, and for a long time, eventually a fierce gentleman comes out, and he yells at me. All the questions that they asked me in Belize when they made the visa, he asked me, and I answered. Then at the end, he says, and why in the world are you still here? You are totally illegal in the country. And uh, Roger just had thought, thought, now they're going to put me in prison. I was totally at peace. I said, sir, we do have a visa. It expires tomorrow. You have no visa on this passport. Look, there's no stamp there. How can I prove that you didn't write it in this passport to, for a visa? I said, sir, I didn't know that I had, asked, I had to ask your immigration officials to stamp our passport. He just wrote it in there, and I, I thought maybe that's the way America does it. That didn't help at all. 
Then I said, uh, actually, he smelled a little bit like liquor. Maybe he forgot. Ooh. <laughs> he got really enraged. I, I said, if, if you can't do this, no problem. We'll just go home. And, and man, he was just so enraged. And he took a pen, and he took a stamp, and he wrote in the passport, and he slammed a stamp on it, and he kind of swung it at me, and he said, don't ever... Ask me again to extend this visa. And I looked at it, and he, I saw he gave me a whole month. Who made him do that? Then on the way back, I told the Lord, Lord, you have shown me that you want us to stay here for the conference. And you also know that I need $600 more to, uh, for these two weeks, because I actually had spent a little bit too much money to travel through Mexico. Lord, what shall I do? make the story short, a brother calls me and asks, you're good with cutting trees, right? Yes. I have a dead tree in the backyard. Would you cut it for me? Yeah, sure. If you have a chainsaw, I'll just rent one and you can cut it. Then I cut it down in one and a half hours. was finished. And he gives me $75 for, seven, for one and a half hours. At that time in 85, that was a lot of money for me. 75 US dollars for one and a half hours. And Roger was watching me, and he said, Levi, you know how much this brother would have had to pay if he had hired a professional to do it? $350. Why wouldn't you go to the pawn shop, buy a, a used chainsaw, and uh, go around with a lot of dead trees in the city, just knock on the doors and ask for to take the tree down? And uh, I said, okay. I took the fellowship. I went to buy a chainsaw, an industrial chainsaw, almost brand new for $75. It was actually a $350 or $400 saw. But in the first tree, I realized why it was so cheap. The, uh, the oiler didn't work for the chain. So I had to use uh, my cord of oil. While I was cutting down the tree, I had to squirt oil on the chain to, that it wouldn't burn out the chain. And then I went home and took my wife with me with a squirt can. Then she would squirt oil on the chain while I was cutting. And uh, we made $150 for the first day. And uh, then in the evening, I, uh, I took it apart, and I, had, I saw that I could fix it. I went to Brother Roger to his, to his shop and put the uh, little part into the uh, speed drill to make it like a lathe to spin it. It was a little cylinder, a little, just a little stick. The, the, uh, it had a wrong part in there from new. The, 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 the uh, robber didn't pass the hole to grab the oil. So I just made another uh, groove into the uh, cylinder further up to the point. And in like half an hour, it was done. And it worked perfectly like a brand new saw. And uh, we ended up in those two weeks making $2,400. And, uh, but anyway, uh, Annie didn't want to leave when, we, when it was time to leave. And I said, what happened with you? You wouldn't go to Costa Rica where, where we knew everybody. We don't know anybody here. Then you said you wanted to stay with the family. And now we, we're here among total strangers. No, nobody is related to us. We don't know these people. And you say you want to stay here. I just like it here. Couldn't we stay here? Okay. Annie, we'll have to go home. At least tell everything before we come back. Then we went to Mexico and to the relatives. And somebody had come from, that had visited Belize had come back the day before 
and they handed us a little scribbled piece of paper written on a calendar leaf, something like, like this. Actually, Larry's wife had written that, Elizabeth. Something like, uh, Annie and Levi, we heard something about a home meeting, and uh, we're, we were invited for, the, for that, and uh, it just changed our life. It's wonderful. There is now uh, over a house full. We cannot fit all in one house anymore. We have to start two houses. Man, I, I, it just bubbled within me. Wow, I want to go home and see what's going on in Belize. I couldn't wait till I was home. The second home meeting that we were when we were in, in Belize, something happened with my dear wife. She just bubbled. I still remember which song she called. It was Amazing Grace. Because we didn't have the recovery books at that time. And, uh, and she said, uh, the last verse, she read it. If we have praised the Lord for 10,000 years, it will just be like if we just had begun. Something like that. And this is the way I feel tonight. I knew we were now on the same page. She now experiences what I experience. We just bubbled over almost all night. In the morning, she was depressed again. And I said, Annie, why are you depressed now? Because now we want to be happy. And she looked at me and said, Levi, I feel I was never born again before. And that scared me when she said that. I just right away said, oh, no, 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 you were born before. You were born again. It's just very weak. You just had a wonderful experience now. And I don't know if you know why I said that. Because I was still a very good Mennonite. I wanted to stay Mennonite. And I knew what that meant. What, what she actually meant was, my baptism doesn't mean anything. Because I was not born again then. I need to be baptized. But she was a nice girl. She wouldn't say that. I closed her mouth. Shut up. In a nice way. I did not want her to bring that up. Because that will be a big hornet's nest disturbed. I didn't want that to happen. Then six months later, I go to, uh, no, not three, maybe three and a half months later, I was invited for a training in, in, uh, in uh, Irving, Texas, at a 10-day training. And we were considering very serious, we couldn't move to the United States because we don't have, Amer we are not American citizens, but we can move to Canada. So we were very seriously planning to move to Canada, to London, London Ontario. And uh, so I was hoping to meet a brother from London in, the, in this training. Or no, I was hoping to meet a brother from Ontario. I didn't dare to ask the Lord to, for me to meet somebody from London. But I, I was praying that he would at least let me see somebody from Ontario that I could fellowship related to moving to Ontario. And then uh, to London. So uh, I go to this training, and the first night of hospitality, the whole table full of brothers and sisters. So I, uh, I dare to ask, is there anybody here in this training? Do you know of anybody in this training that, uh, that is from uh, Ontario, Canada? And then one brother said, yes, I am from Ontario, Canada. Is there, a, are you by any chance... Or from which, from which city are you? He said, I'm from London. And man, that was such a confirmation of the Lord. But then when I started to fellowship with him, he poured ice cold water on it. I got really offended. 
he basically said, don't move to, to London, Ontario. The, the, the economy is not very good there, and uh, we don't want to care for you. He didn't say it that way, but I could feel it that way. And that really uh, bothered me. And every, every day, something I heard uh, in, the, in the meetings that struck me, because one of the things that I heard was, go, and, uh, go into all the world and disciple all the nations and baptize them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And anybody can baptize. And you can baptize them in the bathtub, in your, in your bathroom. And uh, I was so convicted that the Lord, actually the Lord charged me to do it. And I felt like I hit a wall. I lost 10 pounds in that training, those 10 days. It was not because there was not good meals. There were just excellent feasts. But I had no, no hunger. Several times instead of eating, I would go to my bed and cry myself to sleep. Because it was, it was, there was just a, so much new light that I had never seen from the Bible. I, I just couldn't believe that we had been neglected of so, so many truths. And uh, I didn't know what to do. One day, I remember when, they, uh, when, they, uh, when we walked home, a brother from Guatemala was there, and I just cried bitterly. I just didn't know what to do. And he asked me, Levi, why are you crying? And I said, I said, the Lord says, go and disciple the nations and baptize them. And, uh, but I have no way because I have no experience. And the brother looked at me and said, brother, that's very simple. You just need to go first. <laughs> and, uh, and that really bothered me. He would say that. Actually, I was offended that he said that because I never doubted my baptism that I received with the Mennonites, the sprinkling. I, was always, I always felt it was a confirmation that I became a believer. And uh, I never thought that I would need to be baptized. I knew my wife needed to, but not me. And, uh, but I told him, if it is the Lord that told you this, then I want to consider it. And when I said that, the war started in my being. And it was a hard fight. We came to the hospitality, and uh, I opened up to another couple, and they shepherded me till 12 o'clock at night. And we prayed together, and I went to bed, but I could not sleep. Eventually, they, uh, I heard a voice saying, Prove the spirits if they are of God. You have to just check it. Is this of God or not? How could I check this? So I checked on my whole lifetime, and my whole spiritual Christian life, from, I was, from the time I was 16 years old, all my uh, experiences that I had, uh, two ways, negative and positive, went by me, and I checked. And I could very clearly see this was, this was the evil one that tempted me to this. That one was, was the evil one tempted me to this. And this one was the Lord drawing me closer to Him. Like that, there was, a, there was kind of like a considering all these points until I came to this night and I realized the same spirit that burdens me to be baptized is the one that led me to, to the Lord in the first place. So I got very clear it was the Lord that wanted me to, be, to go through baptism. But I had a big problem. The first, the first question was, Lord, if, it is your, if you want me to do it, what about all those dear ones that already meet in homes? What will, if they will hear this, that I, that I was baptized, they will all leave. What about this? The Lord came back and said, what is that to you? Follow me. John chapter 21. 
And I felt like my, my, how my heart was cut out of me. And uh, at that point, I said, Lord, I am willing. When I said that there was such an overflow of joy, I felt like the Lord literally came and gave me a bear hug. And I, all of a sudden, I realized how people could burn, let themselves be burned at the stake for their faith. Now I'm ready. I could bear anything. And uh, at that juncture, I felt, like, I felt like screaming so loud that Annie would hear it in Belize. It was at 2 o'clock or 2.30 at night. And at that juncture, a brother that slept above me in a bunk bed started to call, Oh, Lord Jesus! I said, Amen! I don't know how many times it happened, maybe once or twice. In the morning, I asked him, What did you dream? Do you remember you called the name of the Lord? No, he just slept. He slept very peacefully. But I couldn't sleep. The rest of the night, I fought with the Lord again. Lord, promise me at least my wife that she will be in, on the same page with me being baptized. And uh, so, but he wouldn't promise me. No security, no comfort. In the morning, I had to call her and uh, make another sensitive phone call where there's no privacy. So I called this girl and asked her to call Annie to come to the phone. And an hour later, I called back. She's there. She answers. And then I tell her, I ask her, Annie, have you ever thought after your experience that you had in October that you needed to be baptized again? Very calmly and peacefully, she said, yes. Then I asked, have you ever thought that I also would need to be baptized again? She said, yes. Then within me, I just felt, Annie, what happened with you? Where in the world did you get this from? And she said, uh, Tina came back from Guatemala, my sister Tina. I knew she was in Guatemala City, and I knew she was meeting with the saints there. But I did not know her experience. She had gone one time to the river with the saints together, and they had baptized a group that had come out of Christianity. And uh, within her, there had just been an urge to go and be baptized. But she had felt so lonely. If she, would, she could never do that, because who in, who in Spanish Lookout would be with her to, with, with her baptism? She would be totally left alone. She just couldn't do it. And she had cried bitterly. And while I was in the United States for the training, she comes to stay with Annie for company. And she just pours out her heart to Annie. And she tells her, Annie, I feel like maybe eventually we will all go through the water and become Hebrews. And Annie just had felt, yes! I was so overjoyed. I don't know if you know how happy I was. I thought I would probably lose my wife and my family with this. Even though she was now on my page. But baptism is not a small thing for Mennonites. Rebaptism. It is not a small thing. It is a very serious thing. I knew that. And uh, so we arranged. We would, I would wait to be baptized until after the training. I would invite some brothers to come. And... Uh, so I had some fellowship, and the brother said, uh, you don't, we don't need to come there. You can baptize uh, her and some other brother. They can baptize you. We don't need to come there. And it offended me again very much. But then uh, eventually, uh, after hearing some more of the, of the word being released in the training, I realized 
I need to come home with this testimony. I cannot wait till I get home. Because when I will come back to that environment, I'll get confused again because this had happened before. During the course of the time, I forgot one portion in 85 where, in the, where I felt that uh, after we came back from, uh, from Oklahoma City, actually, I had the feeling we had to move. We, we cannot stay here. And, uh, and I didn't know where to move. I just didn't know what to do. I just felt like I hit a wall. I called 1985 the year of tears because I realized I had to make a decision and I was so scared of the, of the decision. What will I do? Because I'm responsible to my whole family, not just to myself. It was so scary. And uh, one night, I remember I was just in bed crying and, and just pleading with the Lord to show me what to do. All of a sudden, there's a message in front of me that Mr. Pete Kernelson, one of the Mennonite ministers, had spoken like 10 years earlier. I was a young believer when he spoke that. And, uh, and that message was something like, the, the text of that message was 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 through uh, 15 about building gold and silver versus wood, hay, and stubble. And he warned us, the, the Mennonites, this was in the Mennonite church, he warned the whole audience, brothers and sisters, we have too much wood, hay, and stubble among us. And if you are, and, and, uh, and maybe we should all move into a city where we were among worldly people, then we would know who is a real Christian, who is only there because of the environment. And who has personal faith? And uh, it was a strong point. And then he said, uh, "Do er everybody, you do what you want to do, then we will see who is a real Christian. I thought he needed to be uh, excommunicated immediately when he spoke that message. It was a very uh, un-Mennonite message, very strange. I don't know if anyone remembers that message. Do you remember that? And, um, and then... Uh, then he said, do what you do, and if the church collapses, the sooner the better. Then the gold and silver and precious stone will, can, can build the faster if all the wood and hay and stubble is burned out. And uh, that's, that's basically the words he used. And now all of a sudden, I don't know how many years later, this message is in front of me. I still remember a lot of that message that he spoke. And I realized this message applies to me today. I find myself, I, 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 I compared myself to, uh, you know, when you milk cattle, cows, you have to take the calves away that they will not take the milk uh, separately, and then you have them there for six months or seven months until they're weaned, uh, and then you can let them out in the pasture. And when they come out, you have to watch them very closely because they buck and they jump and they, have, they don't know any barbed wire fence. They don't know any cliffs because they have been in a protective, and protective environment the whole time. It's very dangerous for them. Now I realize I find myself in a crumbled barn that will any time collapse. If I want to save my life, I need to get out of here. And then I will be one of these calves without any borders. In the, without any restrictions to be out, what will happen with me? But I realized because it's, it, it was in front of me, this is definitely the Lord. So I went to my dad and I asked him uh, the following day, and I asked him, Dad, do you remember that Pete Cornelison spoke this, uh, I don't know how many years it was, 10, 12 years ago? Uh, what? 
So I shared a few sentences. Oh, yeah, very much. I went to rebuke him very strongly for it. And I told him, Dad, this sermon is now fulfilled in me. This was spoken for me. Of course, my dad was very, very scared or shocked that I said that. That's what I felt. This, this happened in, uh, a little bit, little bit after we came back from Oklahoma. And, uh, but anyway, I, I opened to uh, one of the ministers. I, shepherd, I, 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 uh, I asked him for advice, and he just advised us not to move. And I decided not to move, and I got into darkness. And now when I had this burden to be baptized, I realized if I'll come back again, I will get confused again. I have to do it tonight. So I asked the brothers to baptize me that night. And, uh, and then in the following morning, this was July 4th, 1986, in the evening, about 10 o'clock at evening. In the morning, obviously, it was my wife's birthday, 5th of July, so I wanted to wish her a happy birthday over the phone, and I had to uh, give her that sensitive uh, news that I was baptized already, instead of waiting to do it with her together, though she needed it a lot more than me. And uh, so I wished her happy, happy birthday the next morning. I said, uh, Annie, please forgive me. Uh, don't be angry with me. I felt urged last night to go through the water before I come home. He said, Levi, I'm so happy you did it. I was hoping, I was praying that you would not ho come home without it. <laughs> it was so sweet. So we, I came home and we started the church life in Belize. We had our first table meeting the following Lord's Day morning. And I don't remember how many were there. In the beginning, we had it in the morning. And uh, most of the brothers and sisters that came to the home meeting, they... Uh, they uh, still went to church, to the Mennonite church in the mornings. We had probably three, three couples. I think we were six of us in the first table meeting. And, um, and then, uh, obviously, it became known that I was baptized. And we lost a lot of the dear brothers and sisters that came to the home meeting. We actually lost a whole half because we already had two houses full by this time. And one of the house full of saints all left. And some of them came, became very vicious opposers. Uh, one of them, when I met him, uh, I want to shake his hand. And uh, he drew his hand back and he said, You're not my brother anymore. You go straight to hell. And I said some things and I said, I love you, brother. And that was one of them that actually met with us in the homes. And uh, another one wrote me a very stern letter. Why, I, how, why in the world I would make such drastic decisions? I didn't write him back, but uh, eventually he also came in, came back. It took a while. I went to Brother Carl Reimer. I don't know if you want to share that part. Do you want to? Sure. Yeah, when Levi came home <clears throat> and I found out he got baptized, I said, Levi, uh, I thought we were going to heaven together, but now I have to go alone. You, you, you missed it. And I'm making a little illustration going, going in the bush, going to heaven. 
And when I went by myself, I met Levi in the bush. I said, Levi, where are you going? Levi said, I'm going to heaven. Oh, then we can go together again. And from there on, we met. I think it was a week that I would not meet. I think it was close to a month. Maybe. Actually, uh, the response was, uh, my response to him was, let's go to the Lord with this. Let's just go together. To, you can go to the Lord, and I'll go to the Lord with this. And uh, a month later, he came back, and he said, uh, Levi, I went to the Lord with it, and I met you there, so I had no choice. <laughs> and I think he was one of them that uh, suggested, why wouldn't we start to meet in the evening uh, so that he could also attend, because he was also a song leader, and he was still loyal to the Mennonites. He, he didn't want to just become... I don't know what I would say. He, he felt a burden to stay longer with them. So he asked, why couldn't we meet in the evening? And he could go in the morning to the Mennonite church, and in the evening he could come to the table meeting with us. So we decided to do that. We, started, we decided to meet in the evening, and it didn't take very long. In a very short time, we had 22 adults in the evening table meeting. And uh, I don't know if we have time to go through what happened afterwards. I, I don't know. This, this is basically the story until we started a church life in Belize. This was in 1986, after I came back from the training in July, probably the second weekend in July, we had our first table meeting in Belize as the church in Spanish look out. Hallelujah! Here we are today. The Lord has done wondrous things in Belize. Hallelujah! I don't know if anyone wants to ask questions or... Or share something short? I don't know. I would like to share something short. Well, I came into the picture in 1987. I was farming with Brother Levi together and one other brother, Thomas Penner. And we were working together in the field. And Brother Levi was sharing a lot to me. And he shared some things that I just felt like, no way. This cannot be so. It's totally different from what we have learned. But he backed everything up with the scriptures. And a lot of things began to make sense to me. And there was an inward, I would say an intuition in me, just saying, yes. Yes, that's right. The Bible says it. And it makes so much sense. And it became so clear to me. So I, 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 for a good part, I saw the church in 1987. But at that time, persecution was very strong. And I had friends. I was not willing to pay the price to jump into the church life. But the Lord was just bothering me. I was arguing with the Lord why he had to show it to me. Now I'd have to lose all my friends and I didn't know what all would happen. Um, I wish I had never seen it. But uh, it's just kind of like the Lord was just again and again telling me, well, you have seen it. And you have no choice. You can never be happy with the Mennonites again because you have seen the church. 
And, and, and uh, one of the last days in January of 1987, I made a clear decision and I just jumped into the church life. And I had a few rough times after that. My mom had also seen the church, so she just really encouraged me and she said, you have made the right choice. And then I was encouraged again and I was in the honeymoon out of church life. I really enjoyed the church life. In the beginning, it seemed very noisy to me, the meetings, but it didn't take very long. I, en I enjoyed to be noisy also. <laughs> when we started the church life here, it was very glorious, uh, mostly. And... Uh, out of concern, somebody asked a missionary to come to us to warn us, to warn me. I was brand new. I knew very little about the, the ministry, the recovered truths. I had read at this point very little, and, but I had a lot of books. So this missionary comes to our house, and uh, it's an American missionary, and he asked me to borrow some books from Witness Lee. In my intuition, I knew that this is not good. The uh, reason why he wanted the books, the motive was not right. But I had no other way but to lend him the books. Because if I wouldn't, he would accuse us of not being open. And we wanted to be open letters read by all men, just like 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says. So I loaned him the books and prayed. A couple of weeks later, he calls me and asks for an appointment. He wants, wanted to have an appointment with me when he would return to books. And, uh, of course, I dreaded the appointment a little bit because I didn't know whether I would be ready for to meet this missionary. Then, uh, during this time, another brother came to visit us from Miami, from the church in Miami, and he also wanted to visit uh, Brother Jacob Barkman. Uh, he was one of the ministers in Spanish Lookout. So, he, uh, so I, I called Brother Jacob Barkman to see if we could have a visit. This was one day before I had the appointment with this missionary. I called Brother Jacob Barkman to see if we could come over to see him. There was a brother from Miami here that wanted to see him. And then I asked when would be a good time, and he said, Well, uh, at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, I have this uh, missionary coming to my house. He wants to know more about the local church. Maybe it would be good if you would come the same time. You could answer a lot more questions than, uh, than I could. And, uh, okay, if that's the time he wanted me to come, I would come. So I come there, and uh, I'm there just, be just before the missionary arrives. When the missionary arrives, he He's just right away outrageous and screams at me and says, Levi, why are you here? I have an appointment with you tomorrow. This is my appointment with, with Mr. Barkman. You should not be here. And, uh, and he just started to, uh, just uh, at the top of his voice, just talking and saying, you're just following the devil and uh, just very wicked talk. And... and uh, and I knew I had an appointment the next day. I apologized to him, and I, we left. And what, what should I do? I knew 
this, I could not let this man step into my house, and yet I had an arranged appointment with him. So eventually I decided I will uh, just put two chairs outside in my lumber shed. I had a lumber yard under a big roof. Uh, I would uh, just put two chairs there and I'd wait, wait for him there. And the hour comes and uh, he arrives. And I invited him into the shed there. And, and the first thing he said, uh, Mr. Panner, I had to study so hard to uh, talk to you that that until smoke came out of both my ears. The strange term that he used. Strange st statement. And then he, uh, he had prepared about 20 pages of how, how we, where we all were so wrong. So he took little clips from, there, from these books and he misinterpreted it and he misapplied it and even put it in the wrong context. And it looked very ugly. And the first point that he brought out was uh, that where he said we were so wrong was, well, first of all, he said, you are, you are going against 1,800 years of historic Christianity, and we have to stand up to protect it. That was all, another thing he said in the beginning. And then he, um, he said the first point where we were so wrong was the Trinity, that we declared that Jesus is God. And uh, I just prayed inwardly and trusted the spirit that would speak, would give me words to speak. Because I didn't know how to answer this, this experienced man. I had no idea. So I just asked him, uh, in what name do you baptize people? And he said, I baptize in the name of the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Then I asked, do you honestly and sincere believe that the 12 apostles were absolutely faithful to the charge that the Lord Jesus gave them, gave them in Matthew chapter 28, 19? And he said, of course they were faithful. Why are you asking me such a tricky question? I said, according to the book of Acts and the epistles of Paul, in what name did they actually baptize people? Okay, I know there's a solution to this problem, to this question. I have to go home and study some more. We will not touch it anymore. And then he went to another point. He got caught because it's very obvious that it's never mentioned once afterwards that they, that they actually baptized people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It just simply says they baptized in the name of Christ or they baptize into the name of Jesus Christ, or into the name of Jesus. That's all it says. If they were faithful to that charge that, they, that the Lord Jesus gave us to baptize people into the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, then Jesus is the reality. He is the body. He is the person. He is the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you have Jesus, you have all three of them. Hallelujah! Amen. For such a reality. And the next point was about the mingling, that we said that we were mingled with God. How terrible that was. When he said that, I was sitting right in front of him, we had our legs crossed. A coral snake fell from the roof over my leg. And of course, I shook it off and, uh, and tried to kill it, ran after it to, ki to try to kill it. 
And he jumped up and he screamed and he said, Now God has proven that you have the devil. <laughs> Within me there was just a, such a heavenly peace. I just, again, I was just kind of surprised that it was not me speaking. I said, yes, that's true. Just the same, they said the same thing to Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he came out of the sea and a, and a viper jumped on his hand. And then uh, we, we both sat down again and I said, well, to you maybe uh, you think God tells you that uh, now he has proven that I have the devil. You know what God says to me through this experience? Even though the devil tries to attack me, just like the snakes try to attack me, can't do me anything. And then he got exposed again, and he, he laughed in a very dry, dry laugh, and he said, I was just joking. And uh, then he left. And uh, that's, that's, that's that story. Another thing I, want, I just want to share, we were so hungry in the beginning for the truth. We realized that we were so deprived of the, of the truth that we um, wanted to get into the ministry. So I bought a, a whole set of the, of the life study of the Bible. And I had a burden to get into it every day. So I invited whoever wants to come to my house at 5.30 in the morning is welcome to read one, one message of the life study. And, uh, and I told him, my house will be open every morning. And to my surprise, different brothers and sisters came. Eventually, we had a whole house full. We probably had, I don't know, close to 30, at least 20 some people together. Every morning at 5.30 in the morning, we would read a message. Seven days a week, 365 days a year. Well, I don't remember. Maybe 5 or 5.30. Maybe 5 o'clock. I don't know what time. We might work together one hour. So we read and then we, uh, we uh, uh, testified together, answered questions. We prayed together. It was glorious. We went through the whole book of uh, Matthew, Life Study, <coughs> Uh, I think it was 72 messages maybe, the whole book of Romans, the whole book of Hebrews, and eventually uh, we were not here anymore, so they, you went through John and uh, the book of Revelation. Yeah, another point. We only had one book, so we laid it on a table. We made a line. And we would all read two sentences and then walk on, and then the one behind us would read the other sentences. And quite a few sisters couldn't even read English, so we had to have somebody standing there to help them to pronounce the words. And within a year, they, they fluently read English. Praise the Lord. It was marvelous. Yeah, and we, we switched, switched uh, to different homes eventually, not just our house. We, one week, one home, then the next week, another home. It was marvelous. I went to, uh, to the minister that was most connected with the churches, with the ministry. I went to him first, and I opened to him. I told him what happened. I told him that we are burdened to start to meet as a church in Spanish Lookout. And I told him to uh, take our names off the Mennonite list. We don't consider ourselves Mennonites anymore. 
but we still belong to the same church you guys do. We would like to continue to have fellowship, but we want to be one with all the believers, not just with the Mennonites. And he broke out and cried bitterly. And I realized that he was a lot more open to the ministry than I had thought that he was. And uh, actually, I could go back and say a little bit more. When I came home that first time in 1983 uh, with, the, with this turmoil about eternal security, being, being eternally saved, I wanted to know whether Jacob Bartman knew that. I didn't share that, right? I asked him when I came home. I went to visit him, and I asked him, Brother Jacob, did you know that the local churches teach that they could never lose their salvation? And he said, yes. And he was very calm about it. And that uh, startled me, that, that surprised me that he would be calm about it because I thought it was a very serious issue among the, among the Mennonite beliefs. I had, I had always thought it was a very dangerous false teaching that we should avoid. And he said, I, he, knew, he knew about it. And I asked him, do you believe that that, 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 is the, that that is the truth? And he said, I cannot say that it is not. And when he said that, it, it scared me so much that uh, I felt like saying, brother, if, this, if, if, if such a serious issue is questionable, shouldn't we go on our knees and pray and seek the Lord and seek fellowship to get clear about this and teach the, the, the Mennonites the truth? And uh, I didn't say that, but I realized I need to find my own faith. I need to, to uh, be, I am responsible to my own convictions. I can no longer ride on other people's convictions. At that point, in 1983, I had to go through that. It was very painful to me that I could no longer ride on the Mennonite leader's convictions. I had to find my own convictions. And it took a long time until I got clear with this matter. But eventually, I saw it. And I was so relieved, so sweet to see God's eternal purpose. So wonderful. Hallelujah. Anyway, going back, when, we, when I saw this, that he was so open, he was so... Uh, 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 hungry to see to see more truth and so forth. At this point, when I when I resigned from the Mennonites, I uh, thought, well, maybe we made a decision too quick. Maybe we need to uh, ask some brothers to come to sort this out. What to do from here? And uh, this is part of the uh, matter that I mentioned earlier about being concerned going back into the garlic room and become be, get contaminated again with with our background. The background is so strong. And uh, so uh, I asked him, should we uh, invite some brothers? And uh, there's several mistakes. I made some grave mistakes in this matter. I, uh, I asked, I let him choose which brothers to invite. And he knew only one that he would invite. So I, I didn't know the principle in the Bible of two, that one, one worker shouldn't al go alone. There should always be more than one. Paul never went anywhere alone. He always had somebody with him. It's the principle of the body to, to have more than one, to, to, be, uh, to be supported and to be covered. And uh, he suggested one Chinese brother that physically had known Watchman Nee, but he was not even an elder. 
in a church. And I didn't pay attention to it. But since he thought he was such a well-experienced brother, I thought, well, let's, uh, let's invite him. And I let him invite him, because he knew him. And uh, when he came, I let him go to the airport to pick him up. And uh, he stayed in his house for the night. It was not until the following day uh, around noon that I met him, that I went to see him. And I felt he was very cold towards me. I invited him to ask him, when could you come to our house for fellowship? And, uh, and he said, well, we can all come with all the ministers together. Why couldn't we come with all together? I said, I have no problem with that, but I would like to have fellowship with him first. Because uh, brother, this brother, uh, the minister in Spanish God, had now already had, had uh, almost 24 hours fellowship with him, uh, with him without me. Why couldn't I also have a little bit of fellowship with him? Then the following day when he came for lunch, I had invited several brothers around the table. And the first thing in the fellowship was, Levi, don't go back to, to, the, to uh, Irving again and get baptized again. And I, it, it startled me. Who is this brother? This, this sounds very strange. I thought I was one with all the brothers in the church. And uh, I didn't ask him, but I didn't dare to ask him, but... I, I thought, if, does that mean that I should not have been baptized? If I should not have been baptized, then I don't know if God is real. I don't know another God. What shall I do? What, what, where am I? And then the next thing said was, go back to, to this leading brother in Spanish, look out and uh, apologize for calling the uh, Mennonites a denomination. And uh, that was, I was just cut to pieces. If that's the next move to do, I'll do it. So I went. I actually went to this brother and I apologized for calling them a, a denomination. When I did that, I lost my vision. I got into a tunnel, I got into darkness, no more enjoyment. Everything was gone. I went into deep darkness. We had a wonderful home meeting in that, in, in that brother's house that night. But I could not enjoy anything. I got a terrible headache and eventually I excused myself and went home. And then the next morning he wanted, to, he wanted to go back to Belize City to the airport. And he wanted to, me to go with him with, with the, a bunch of the Mennonite uh, leaders, uh, ministers. And I just felt I cannot go. So I just told Annie, they will arrive here in a few minutes. I will leave. I won't tell you where I'm going. And just tell them I, Levi is not available. And of course, I didn't have a cell phone at that time or anything, so nobody could contact me. And I went into the pasture, into the woods, and I prayed. Laid on my knees and prayed. And eventually they came and asked for me to go with them to Belize, and I wasn't available, and they couldn't wait because he had to catch the plane, so he left. And I was in darkness. I could not enjoy the home, I could not enjoy the table meetings anymore. I was so disappointed. I thought now we would enjoy the church life. And we had a bunch of saints that very much enjoyed the church. The church life, but I couldn't enjoy it. One time I even didn't take the table meeting. 
I was there, but I, I let the Brad and the, the uh, cop pass. I couldn't take it. Several times I had no way to do it, and uh, eventually after some bitter crying, they, uh, I felt better, and then they passed it around. I took it, but there was no, no real enjoyment. It was very, very hard. Eventually, I just felt like uh, I couldn't go on. I couldn't live anymore. And Annie started to plead with me, go to the United States and visit the brothers. And I didn't trust them because they would all rebuke me for what I had done. And if I have to, uh, put a, to reverse all that, then there is nothing for me. Then I might as well kill myself. I can't go on. There's no way for me to go on. I just hit a wall. And I couldn't do it. Well, then at least call them. And uh, so eventually I called this brother, the same one that was, he, was here. I went, I, there was a conference uh, invitation from, uh, from Mexico, Monterrey. I wanted to go. So, uh, but this brother had told me, don't do anything without permission from the leading brothers in Spanish lookout. So, so I went to, uh, to ask the, this brother in, in Spanish lookout if I could go to the conference. And he said, I don't think, I don't think you should go. So I went to a uh, telephone to call this brother. I had to go cross the river, wait a long line to get, to get over the, with the ferry, and uh, go across the river to, uh, to my friend there and use his phone. The phone, phone call cost me, uh, I think if I remember right, it was $180, that phone call. And it took almost a whole day, because on the way back I had to wait again about an hour or two at the ferry to cross the river. And the, brother, and the brother just said, I told the brother, brother, I feel burdened to go to this conference. And he asked me, did you ask the leading brothers in Spanish like God? I said, yes. Well, what did they say? I said, I shouldn't go. Well, then you shouldn't go. So I didn't go. And it was so painful. And eventually the invitation came to uh, sign up for another training in December. And obviously in this storm, I could never baptize my dear wife. And uh, so uh, I just had a burning within me. I have to go to this training. But I was so scared. And then uh, I called this brother again and asked him. I, I went again across the river, do the same thing again. I asked this brother. Um, no, I think in between, before, before this happened. I just came to the ends. I just didn't know how to go on. So I decided, eventually, after so much pleading from, uh, from Annie, my wife, I did go and make a phone call to call one of the co-workers and with the, from the book. I, I knew some. I knew Brother Benson. I knew a few others. And uh, probably, I don't know if I called you, tried to call you. Anyway, none of them answered. All of them an answering machine. And uh, eventually, there was nobody left. I, I, did, I didn't want to call anybody I didn't know. I wanted to call somebody that I had seen. And I didn't know whom to call. And then I just paged through the book and I saw a rhymer there. Jerry Rhymer. And I thought, well, I, I don't know this brother, but it sounds like he must have come from the Mennonites. He might have understanding. So I'll call him. Then his wife answered. Then I uh, asked him, her, she asked, can I help you? And I said, I would like to speak to Brother Jerry. I'm so sorry, he's not home. Can I be of any help? 
I was, at this point, I was so desperate. Finally, I got some living person on the phone. I just, I just blurted out to her my problem. And she said, Brother Levi, the church in Dallas has a, has a prayer meeting tonight. I will announce it, and the church in Dallas will pray for you tonight. And I just said, thank you, and I hung up, and I bawled for a long time. Then after that, this, this invitation for the training came, and I had to ask, call this brother again and uh, asked him. I told him, brother, I feel burdened to go to this training, and there's, there's a bunch of other brothers and, and sisters that have a desire to go. What shall we do? And he said, he asked me, have you asked already uh, the leading brother in Spanish lookout? I said, yes. Well, what did he say? He said, I don't think you should go. Then he said, well, I think you need to go anyway. You, you guys need to go. When he said that, I realized that I made a big mistake that I didn't ask uh, rather co-workers to come instead of a brother was not even in the lead. There must be a reason why this brother is not a leading brother, an elder in the church. Uh, because why would he change? If he now says, I have to go anyway, that means that I made a mistake by going to apologize to call the Mennonites a denomination. Now I have to go and retract that apology. It was very hard for me. But I went. I went and uh, told him, Brother, I realize I made a mistake to apologize for calling you a denomination. And there was actually another thing. I did argue with this brother. Brother, I'm willing to recant and go back to the Mennonites under conditions that you will stay here and go with me. Then I'll do it. Otherwise, I cannot do it. I, I told him this much when he was, uh, when he was there. And of course, he couldn't stay, so I told him, then I cannot do it. And uh, so we signed up. Twelve of us signed up to go to the training, including my dear wife, Annie. And uh, in that training, I was so scared that Brother Lee would rebuke me for leaving the Mennonites. I was just uh, almost trembling when I was sitting in the front row. They put me right in front of Brother Lee. And uh, sure enough, Brother Lee turned to me and spoke to me. What is he going to say now? And he just made comment after, after comment for following the Lord's leading. And he just encouraged me to go back and to stand for the Lord's testimony. That shocked me. So it was such a bomb to me. For I would, I would say at least probably five years in a row, every single training, he would speak to me directly to, uh, to just to comfort me and to strengthen me, to encourage me, brother, you did the right thing. And uh, even now sometimes when I, when I am in a storm where it is hard, where, you know, we all go through storms where we, where we, where we are t attacked by the devil, these attacks still come back sometimes. They still haunt me. I have had such hard times to forgive this brother. But I can say very boldly, with the grace of the Lord, he in me has done it. I love and forgive this brother. He just didn't know better. It was my mistake. 
I should have known better to, uh, to invite co-workers rather than just a brother that's not even in the lead. And number two, I should have gone with this leading brother to the airport to pick him up to be there together. If, if, if I had done that, I think it would, have, it would have worked out. But because I didn't do it, I did not do it according to the principle of the body, this was a very hard lesson to learn. The principle is never to do anything alone. Do it with the brothers to be covered. Anyway, we went to the training, and I, I just prayed that some door would open to, for Annie to be baptized. And she was praying too. And we were staying at, the, at the Barry Morgan. Was there such a brother? Tall brother, his house. And he, both of them worked full-time for, for a living stream ministry, so they didn't have time. And we didn't know anyone there, and it seemed like the house was empty most of the time during the time that we could do anything. And, uh, but then eventually, almost the last day before the training, or towards the end, a couple comes and visit from Atlanta. And I don't know why they came to visit us. We didn't know them. They didn't. We had never seen them. Probably because Brother Lee was speaking to me. They wanted to meet me. And, um, and then uh, the sister was uh, visiting with Annie in one room, and, and uh, the brother was visiting with me in another room. And, uh, and I started to pour out my heart to him. He was not a leading brother either. He was just a brother in, uh, in Atlanta. So I was pouring my heart out to him. And when I came to the point where, where I brought up that my, my wife had a desperate desire to be baptized, then suddenly this sister comes walking into the room and says, here's a sister that wants to be baptized. <laughs> so I didn't even need to mention it. And then they made a few phone calls, and some other saints came. We had a room full in a few minutes, and my dear wife got baptized into the triune God. Yeah. Wonderful experience. Yeah. Glorious. And then from there on, we went ahead with enjoyment of the Lord, enjoyment of the church life. Hallelujah. Here we are today. The Lord has done wondrous things Amen. in Belize. Hallelujah. I don't know if anyone wants to ask questions or, or share something short. I don't know. Yeah, several, uh, I don't know, maybe a year later, a brother approached me from Dallas after a training meeting, and he said, Brother, Brother, Brother Lee always talks to you in the trainings. I just wanted to meet you. He said, uh, I don't know about Belize, I don't know where it is, but I remember one time the church in Dallas prayed for the church in Belize. And I was so comforted by that. And I looked at him and I said, brother, that prayer rescued the church in Belize. I feel I need to say one more thing. It will take a few minutes more. The, uh, this was also in 85. Um, this was... No, sorry, this was in 86. In the in, uh, beginning of 86, I wanted to, uh, uh, I had a very big burden to visit more churches. I wanted to, I wanted to check whether the uh, local churches were the same in different countries. I had, had already visited a few in the U U.S. Now I wanted to, I was burdened to visit the church in Mexico City. And... Uh, 
So I asked some brothers to go with me. This was in 85, 86 before we were actually in the church life. And uh, so, so eventually six of us decided we would go to Mexico City. We thought there would be a conference. We would stay, we'd be, be there in a conference. And then, uh, but it wasn't that easy to move, to go there because uh, we didn't have transportation. We had to take the bus. And we had to purchase uh, bus tickets in Chatham Mall, which was a, a three, at least a three-hour hour ride away. With the bus, it would probably take four or five hours to get there. And uh, we had to purchase tickets there. And when I called them, I asked them, can I make reservations? They said, no. Can I make, buy the tickets over the phone? No, you have to be there in person. I told them, but I am here th three and a half to five hours away. It's not, it's not practical for me to go there to purchase tickets and come back. I asked, can we buy tickets on our trip on the way there? They said, no, because we are booked three days and already overbooked. So we would have to wait there three days if we buy tickets on our trip. And that was not practical for us. So I said, sir, and this was in Spanish, I said, sir, our situation is that I need to make reservations now. Please reserve six seats for Mr. Penner. Thank you, bye-bye. I quickly hung up that he would not be able to say no. And then we prayed. We desperately prayed. On Thursday, we went to Chatham Mall. We come there, and we prayed. We prayed a lot. And when we get there, the, the, the bus deep was just overcrowded. The lines to buy tickets were out onto the street, and, uh, or, or at least way to the front door. And I, I, my heart sank when I saw that. So I went in line, a long line. It took a long time till I finally was at the booth. And I asked them, uh, do you have uh, uh, seats for... Uh, a reserved seats for Mr. Penner with six seats. We never take reservations. Next! And I was out. And uh, eventually I heard loudspeakers announcing this bus that, that we were supposed to be on is leaving in five minutes. Everybody board a bus that has tickets. And I just didn't know what to do. I was, I was so in a storm. Just, something within me just urged me to just go to the front, to the booth, squeeze myself in front of the people there to the window. It was, I went to a different window this time, not to the same one. And I asked, do you have seats for Mr. Penner for this boss that is leaving in five minutes? And he looked, yeah, you have six seats. You have to hurry. The boss is leaving. And I just quickly paid the, the money and we ran into the bus. The bus driver waited a, a little bit for everybody to get on and away we went. That was one of the stories. Maybe I could share another one. It didn't take very long. So we went to, uh, to Mexico City. We had a marvelous time there. And then we were there in a, in a table meeting, Lord's Day morning. It was about a group, maybe about uh, 75 saints together. Wonderful, the most wonderful table meeting. And then suddenly I saw my wife sitting in the, in the Mennonite church, looking at the clock to see how many more minutes till it would be finished. And uh, I just had to cry when I, when I, I wasn't in my imaginations. And I started to pray for, Spanish, for the church in, Spanish, in Belize. And to my surprise, I would say at least 30 of the saints strongly joined in and prayed that the Lord would raise up a strong testimony in Belize. That was so encouraging. Another thing, and also what happened in 85, uh, Elizabeth was uh, uh, almost in her deathbed. We all, all thought that she would pass away. 
very, very sick. And uh, she had begged that I would come to Guatemala City to see her before she would pass. And uh, I got these, these, uh, this, this uh, information just like they said, you have to leave in 20 minutes when I heard the, uh, the, the uh, news. Somebody came and told me, you have to get ready and leave in 20 minutes, otherwise you'll miss the flight in, uh, in Flores. That's a, a city a little ways into Guatemala. We had to drive two and a half hours to get there. And if we would not leave in 20 minutes, we would miss that flight and we would have to wait another day. And uh, that was too long. We, uh, they felt that we had to be there that day. And they said, the reservations are made. They, they, uh, you just get there on time before the plane leaves. And we hurried, and Annie and I, and, and that within me, I had, a, I had a very deep desire to also visit the church in Guatemala City. I wanted to know did all the different, uh, see if they were all the same. So we went to uh, Guatemala City, or we went to the airport, and, uh, and we barely got there in time. They were all already all boarded on the plane. And when, we came, when I ran into the, into the terminal, the, uh, the people there behind the counter, they said, Are you Mr. Penner? Hurry, the plane is leaving. Well, but I need to, I need to pay the tickets. No, they're all paid for it. Just get on the plane, get on, get on, otherwise you'll miss it. And she just gave me the, the boarding passes, and we ran. And then uh, I wanted to pay at the other end. They said, no, the ticket, tickets are paid for. Up to this date, I have never been able to find out who paid those tickets. I don't know. Nobody, everybody said no. But at the airport, they said they were paid for. I don't know what happened. And then we, uh, this was a Tuesday, and then, in the, and then in the evening after we visited Elizabeth, she got well in a few days. I don't know what happened. The Lord just came in. And... Uh, so we visited the saints there, and I told the brothers, uh, I have such a desire we, uh, to be in a table meeting. And, and the brother called all the saints in Guatemala City, and they had a table meeting for us, a short notice, on a Tuesday night. Very, very sweet. 